I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. I don't remember everything I read in high school. I don't know how you can, and you probably don't either. It was too many years ago for me. But I do remember reading a novel that left quite an impression on me. It was called The Oxbow Incident. Movie was made of it, I believe, Henry Fonda. Uh, but this book, The Oxbow Incident, the novel, it had to do with vigilantes, or better said, a mob. And this mob pursued extra legal means to achieve what they thought was justice. And I think the reason I was so interested in this theme of mob rule or mobocracy or vigilantism, all of that, these violent manifestations of people thinking they are pursuing justice and, you know, judge, jury, executioner, that kind of thing. Well, it had to do with my own family history because my great-great-grandparents were forced out of their homes by mobs on more than one occasion. That's part of the story of the Mormon people in Missouri and Illinois. And so the word mob has been important in my own family legacy, and it has, of course, resurfaced in recent times with the obvious flashpoints in contemporary American politics. I, I probably don't need to elaborate here, but I will say some commentators who have sized up the January 6th assault on the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., they have drawn parallels to extra-legal attempts of mobs and lynch mobs in our nation's history. Well, our next segment here on Constant Wonder involves a very surprising, even an improbable outcome from a story about the American justice system. It's the story of a black man accused and even convicted of murder when apparently he was acting in self-defense, and all of this during a mob assault on his family, on his home. And here to tell the story is Ben Montgomery. Montgomery is author of A Shot in the Moonlight, How a Freed Slave and a Confederate Soldier Fought for Justice in the Jim Crow South. Ben Montgomery, I should say, formerly reported for the Tampa Bay Times and currently writes for Axios. Ben, welcome to our program. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. How did you stumble across this story in the very first place? I had been engaged in a project for the Tampa Bay Times that took about three years. We were trying to account for six years' worth of police shootings in the state of Florida. And this was no small task. It involved uh, asking somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 police law enforcement agencies to provide records anytime an officer had shot a civilian. And um, uh, there were some shocking results uh, related to that. 40% of people shot by police in the state of Florida in that six-year period were black. And I think in the middle of all this, I started to long for a story that didn't end so tragically, uh, a story where, you know, the, the would-be victim actually was successful. And so uh, I went in active pursuit of that. And, and so I started looking around in history to see if there was a story that, that was sort of a vehicle to let me talk about issues of race and justice and self-defense and self-protection for the black community. And I stumbled, uh, I stumbled across this story in 1897, just reading old newspaper clippings. And I thought this fit the mold. This was really a, a fine way to talk, not only about uh, issues of self-protection and race, but also to talk about the, um, the myth of the lost cause and to talk about Confederate statuary and monuments and how we today try to remember the Civil War. Now, the story you found is the story of this George Dinning, and it's a story of him as an adult, actually, but I, I think just to kind of set the stage here, he's about 10 years old when the Civil War ends. He was born in 1855, so he was born into slavery. Both of his parents were enslaved people, um, and this all took place in southwestern Kentucky. Um, so he would have been 10 uh, when the war ended in 65. Now, the mob shows up at his home in what year? And, and, and this is when he's an adult and he has a family? Yeah, of course. He uh, was a free man. He, was, um, he came by about 125 acres squarely. He paid for the land, built his own house upon the land. He was asleep one night in January of 1897 with his wife and about half of his children. The other half were staying at his parents' house inside of a small cabin when 25 of his neighbors, white men, gun hung, uh, rode up to his house late one night on horseback, um, again, January 1897, and they demanded he come out of his house. He refused. He knew why they were there. 
Um, they were um, making all sorts of demands, uh, accused him of stealing livestock from neighboring farms. Um, he said that he could get um, honest white neighbors to vouch for him, to talk about his good character, but they were having none of that. And at some point they opened fire onto his house, which, which set the whole thing in motion. This is classic American mob action. Sure enough. And it was not unusual in that place or time. Uh, there were many incidents preceding and after this event. Uh, the thing that makes this different is he grabbed his own rifle and made a decision to defend himself and his family. And he is injured himself in the process. How badly is he injured? He got shot in the left arm as he made his way upstairs. Um, he leaned out an upstairs window and the, the mob was gathered below and he squeezed off one shot from a shotgun full of bird shot. Um, and at, at the same time that he squeezed off this, this round, uh, he took a bullet in the forehead. It didn't kill him. It grazed his forehead. Um, and, uh, his, his shot struck and killed the 32 year old scion of the wealthiest farm family in southwestern Kentucky. That's not good for him. I mean, if, if you're taking out one of the elite members of that community, uh, you've gone for the jugular, it seems, from one standpoint. It was a big deal. Um, he fled the house as the white men retreated and tended to the wounds of the injured uh, person. Um, he hid out in a field he overheard the mob talking about setting fire to his own house over the heads of his wife and children. They did not. They decided instead to retreat and to tend to the wounded man uh, who died a short time later. Uh, George Denning ran to the home of a white neighbor, told the story. The following morning, he decided to go back and check on his family. He was on his way back when he heard for the first time that he had killed a member of the mob that was there to lynch him. And so he proceeded immediately to uh, the local sheriff in Franklin, Kentucky, and turned himself in, essentially throwing himself at the hands of the system. Yeah, he knew that if he were not to be behind bars that might protect him, he would have no protection. That's exactly right. And if, uh, the mob did, in fact, the following morning return to his house, demanded that his wife and children leave, and this was no easy journey for them. It was freezing cold that January. Um, they were rousted from their home, uh, unclothed, uh, put on horseback and sent away. And they were told not to stop until they had gotten 50 miles out, out of the county. And in the meantime, uh, the mob set fire to everything that George Denning and his family owned, including their cabin, their gear house, their barn and their fields. So let's just stop for a moment in this story because we could just march through the story and, and think about um, what happens next. But this is um, prototypical. This is, this is normal American behavior in the Jim Crow era, and this is in Kentucky. And now there's a legal system, and somehow George Dinning decides it's going to work for him? As strange as that might sound... Um, I think he trusted the sheriff of the county. He had some dealing, we know, with the sheriff prior to this. Um, uh, and as, yeah, the, 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 the interesting thing to me in researching this book is so often it was the case where a man or woman uh, was arrested, was taken into custody, or maybe they turned themselves in, uh, black, black men and women we're talking about. And um, uh, within a short time after... Uh, after they're in custody of the law, uh, the mob shows up at the jailhouse and demands the jailer turn over the keys. And often this was a bit of a show, but the jailer would succumb, uh, turn over the keys, and the mob would spring from jail the person who had been accused of some, typically some minor crime, sometimes being uppity or uh, you know, committing a misdemeanor level crime. And they would uh, proceed to, to lynch, to continue the lynching, to lynch the, um, the accused. Um, this was, you know, an era when vigilante justice was run amok. 
Well, it's time to introduce here in just a moment the next character for this story, which is the lawyer who represents him. And the improbability, the irony of this is is going to be pretty obvious here in just a moment. We need to take a short break, and we'll return to Ben Montgomery and his story of George Dinning and uh, his, I can't say exoneration, and yet uh, this has something of a happy ending, a very surprising ending. Stay tuned to Constant Wonder. Thanks for joining with us for Constant Wonder today. I'm Marcus Smith. Ben Montgomery is with us, a reporter and an author. He's written the story of George Dinning. It's called A Shot in the Moonlight. And we've gotten to the part of the story now, Ben, where it's time to talk about a a lawyer who had been a soldier and a former Confederate soldier, I must say, Bennett Young, who turns out to be very serviceable uh, for George Dinning. and, And you wouldn't think this would happen. That's absolutely right. Bennett Young was a proud son of the South. He had uh, joined the war as a young man in his teens. He had ridden with Morgan's Raiders, who uh, famously uh, made a, um, a skirmish in uh, into Indiana and Ohio um, into the north. After that, Bennett Young was sentenced to prison in what we now call Hell's uh, 1800 Acres in a prison camp, Camp Douglas in Chicago. Uh, he had escaped from that prison and made his way back to the South and then hatched a plot to raid uh, in an effort to try to distract the Yankee troops in the North. He hatched a plot to stage a raid from Canada into New Albans, Vermont, which he carried out very successfully. Um, it didn't do much to turn the the Union's attention to the North, but nonetheless, uh, he held hostage a small town along the Canadian border in Vermont for about 24 hours before making his way back into Canada with the other raiders. Um, and then uh, and then made his way uh, overseas to sort of escape. Uh, and before he was granted amnesty to return to the United States, he got a law degree. Uh, and when he finally got back to Louisville in uh, the late 1890s, um, he began to practice law and became known in Louisville as not only a uh, wonderful orator um, for whom people would show up out of the blue to watch try cases, uh, he also became something of um, a benefactor for uh, the poor uh, colored people of Louisville. Do you have any idea why he would have uh, shifted his stance? I mean, he's taken his weight off of one foot and put it on the other. He's he's, uh, advocating for the people that formerly he thought should remain enslaved. He saw the light of day after the war, and every indication is that he realized the um, the wrong of his ways and his previously held incl- inclinations. Um, so you see him li- later in life, certainly in the 1880s and 1890s, taking on pro bono the cases of black men and women who had been wronged and who had trouble getting access to the justice system And beyond that, he founded an orphanage and was a benefactor and longtime money raiser for an orphanage for black children. So uh, that suggests to me that um, this was a guy who was trying to rectify um, something in his past and at the same time uh, did a lot to raise money for Confederate causes. He led the Confederate Veterans Association for about two decades. He raised uh, money for and gave keynote addresses at the unveilings of many Confederate monuments across the South that were that were erected in the early 20th century. This is puzzling to us today. Should it be so puzzling? I believe, uh, you know, I believe that he left behind a complicated legacy, and this is the exact thing that we're that we're debating today. How are we to remember? The, the men who fought courageously for a cause that we now know was so wrongheaded. Um, you know, there was a very prescient editorial that I came across in 1865 in the New York Times that essentially said, the men of today uh, will not be remembered for what they think they'll be remembered for. They'll be remembered essentially for how they came down on the great issue of our day, which is uh, the issue of slavery. 
And this is exactly what's playing out right now. There uh, is a temptation to judge these men who fought for the South, um, in many cases bravely and nobly, uh, for their um, for their stance on that one primary issue, uh, whether it was okay for uh, a white person to own people of color and to put them to work. Um, and so I think we're right to judge those men and women in that light. But many of them have very complicated legacies, uh, including maybe chief among them, Bennett Young. Yeah, I, I want to maybe pry open some space for some rehabilitation of someone like Bennett Young, maybe. But it depends on the remainder of the story that you have to tell us about how he defended George Dinning. What did he actually do for Dinning? Denning got out of uh, prison. He and there's another important person in this story, uh, Bill Bradley, who was the governor, the very progressive governor of the state of Kentucky in the late 1890s. And Bradley, after Denning was convicted by uh, an all-white, all-male jury in 1897 and sentenced to seven years in prison, Bradley saw fit to pardon Denning almost immediately upon Denning's arrival at prison. Um, and so when Denning got out, he, he sort of went on a, he had nothing to return to. The mob had burned his home, uh, chased, chased his family off from, from Simpson County, Kentucky. And so rather than return to Simpson County, he went to Louisville, um, and went on a bit of a speaking circuit around black clubs and churches. And he was lionized by the, uh, by the black community in Louisville. They raised offerings for him. They gave him a platform from which he could tell his story uh, of self-defense. Uh, he was celebrated in a big way. He had defended himself and his family from mob attack and had been pardoned uh, for, you know, f after this wrongful uh, conviction of manslaughter. And so, um, and so the black community also connected him with Bennett Young and Bennett Young gave him access to the court. He, uh, you know, for, for no real motivating factor, no financial success was to come to Bennett Young for winning this case. Uh, he pro bono took on the case of George Denning and they sued the, the lynch mob who had outed themselves publicly at the criminal trial in order to testify against George Denning to get his conviction. Uh, he sued the lynch mob in federal court, and they eventually were successful. They won damages to the tune of $50,000 from about a dozen uh, you know, farmers who had tried to, tried to kill the, the, this black man in Simpson County two years before. And, and not just tried to kill him, but uh, all of his, his home and property had been taken as well. And, and, and that, as you described, 125 acres is no small uh, tract of land. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just happened to be on a, um, on a, uh, 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 an event, a book event a few days ago with, the descendants of George Denning, um, about a half dozen members of his family. And the question was posed to them, do you feel like justice was achieved in this? Uh, you know, Denning successfully sued the lynch mob the first time that had happened in American history, uh, and won $50,000 in damages, the equivalent of, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of $1.5 million in today's money. Uh, they were asked, do you feel like justice was achieved? And to a person, they said, no, their family had lost this acreage. And this happened not just to George Denning. This was a very common thing in the South, often with the uh, person of color just being driven off, chased away from their land, never to return. But the, the descendants of Denning still, you know, they've inherited this trauma and this loss, this loss of property, which would be a valuable piece of property today. They still don't feel like you know, there was a happy ending to this whole saga. So Bennett Young's participation was strictly in the lawsuit for damages. That's right. Had nothing to do with the criminal case beforehand. That's right. Um, the earliest involvement that uh, I was able to tell via public record was uh, a telegraph that he sent to the governor of Kentucky after George Denning's conviction. And he said, do not let the sun set on Denning in prison one night. He deserves to be freed. And so that, that so far as I know, was his first involvement in that case. And that's a tremendous intervention right there. Uh, that's he heroic. 
It is. It, and not it, not to overshadow the heroism yeah. of George Dinning in this, but I mean, he, Bennett, Bennett Young did his part. He did. And um, he was joined. There was a chorus of calls for pardon uh, from both white and black citizens of Kentucky. But, you know, some of the most powerful white men in Kentucky recognized that this was a miscarriage of justice and that it should be rectified and called upon the governor of Kentucky to do what was right and to pardon George Denning immediately. Do you think this case had any repercussions, any ripple effect through society beyond just this case as though it were a one-off? I'm, I'm wondering if in any way this uh, tamped down on some mob activity, uh, is there any way to know if this was a signal that was meant to have broader implications? Oh, absolutely it was. And, uh, you know, first of all, the case was sensational and it was reported upon by newspapers across the country. So I don't know that there's any way to measure that sort of message, uh, the message that the lynch mob for the first time in American history can be held accountable in a court of law and that would-be lynchers would be responsible for paying money back to a black man. How to measure that, I don't know. But you do see evidence shortly after the George Denning case of black men and women who had been wronged seeking justice, you know, in the courts from uh, attempted lynchers. And that, and that, you know, played out almost immediately. Two or three cases followed within the next five years, the next half decade uh, of people who you know, sought damages, similar types of damages from would-be lynch mobs. So help me out with this. Uh, A mob comes to your home. They threaten to take your life unless you leave. Shots are fired. You defend yourself. They're clearly happy to take your life if they get the chance to do it. You get away. You lose all of your property in your home. Your family flees in the middle of winter. You're accused and convicted of a crime. You get seven years. You're pardoned by the governor. That's an exoneration. Uh, And and then you sue them in return. That, in a way, is adding fuel to a fire where even if you win that case, it's it's certainly not happily ever after because you've just enraged the people who had to make the payment uh, for for their wrong. And and they can come right back at you again. That's right. And in fact, um, well, first of all, let me just acknowledge the level of courage that that would have taken. If you can imagine... What a brave thing to do to, you know, sort of trust this system that had wronged you in the past, uh, that was part of the system into which you were born in the custody of another person, enslaved to another person. To have that level of trust is, in my mind, just a huge amount of courage. I, I shouldn't fail to say that when word started to get out that George Denning was planning on suing the lynch mob sometime in 1897-1898 when he is on this speaking circuit among black churches and clubs in Louisville word got out the newspapers reported on his plan to sue the lynch mob and there's still uncertainty about what about the specifics of this incident but he wound up being found and beaten half to death and left for dead on uh, on a, a dark street in Louisville late one night. Nobody knows who his assailants were. Nobody was ever tried or prosecuted for this crime. But men found him, beat him over the head with a brick, gouged out one of his eyes, and left him for dead. And this is on the on the precipice of uh, him actually filing this suit in federal court. So when we think about him in federal court. It's important to acknowledge that he was missing an eye from violence that may have been perpetrated by the same men who attempted to lynch him that night in Simpson County in 1897. Uh, I think it's so important to say that with with this kind of a story and just development after development after development, uh, a man like George Dinning is going to go to his grave always looking over his shoulder, always. I think there's evidence to suggest that uh, that 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 was true. He he was found a few years later uh, sitting in his front room in a home that he had bought with the proceeds from this court case. 
uh, by a reporter from the newspaper in Jeffersonville, Indiana. And the newspaper reporter made note that Dennings didn't seem especially scared. Um, I'm not sure that was the case. I, I know that his descendants talk about this, uh, this grudge that his own immediate offspring carried for the rest of their lives because of what had happened to, uh, to George. They were, uh, I think everyone would agree, were an angry people. They were not um, uh, folks from that point on who would, um, who, who would take any level of injustice. They fought back for themselves. They were um, vengeful. And, you know, that, that's an important thing to note as well. Um, now, the descendants alive today, and I, I've gotten particularly close with a man named Anthony Denning, who was the great-grandson of George Denning. And Anthony is uh, a sweet guy, uh, welcomed me into this story. He had done a lot of his own research. In fact, much of it there in, in Utah um, uh, at the, um, the family genealogical library. Um, and he is a, he is a, a kind guy, uh, and a guy who is, um, you know, amenable and, um, uh, proud to share in this legacy. Uh, but that is a family that has inherited a real level of trauma. They had to escape from Kentucky. Uh, and the family lore has it that George Denning's wife, Molly, uh, shuttled all of her kids across the Ohio River into Kentucky, where it was safe, into the north. I'm sorry, into Indiana, where it was safe for them to live, uh, in barrels. And who knows if that was in barrels, sort of free floating in the river, if it was in barrels on some kind of a barge. But, um, but they joined what, for all intents and purposes, was the like underground railroad to escape Kentucky. And they uh, acknowledge and 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 know and remember the trauma that came from that event, and um, it's part of who they are. So you're white. I am. Uh, and when you visit with the descendants, tell me about your state of mind in terms of um, just broaching the topic to when you first meet them, and and, and you're a reporter. How does how does it feel? Uh, as a white reporter going after this kind of a story? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I approached it with serious trepidation. Um, I realized that a story like this is, um, you know, uh, full of uh, certain racial pitfalls. Uh, I'm sensitive to that. I did not want to be viewed as an interloper or as a profiteer uh, on a story that essentially doesn't belong to me, right? It, it exists as a, you know, on public record as a piece of American history, but I wanted to make sure that I um, did not trample uh, upon a story that really belongs to a family of people whose color is different from mine. And so I made every effort to um, uh, help them um, be at peace, to to get permission essentially to tell tell this story in book form. Um, and they, they were so, um, so kind to, uh, and Anthony, Anthony, especially he's my sort of point of contact with their family, but they're so kind to, um, not only, uh, allow me to do the research and the hard work it took to tell this story, but also, um, to, um, welcome me into their family and, uh, make known that they're grateful uh, make known publicly that they're grateful that this story is finally sort of revived and, and out there for a lot of people to read. And if there's a service that you were able to provide for their family beyond uh, just calling attention to the story, I'm imagining that you may have had opportunity to bring them some information and some details that they hadn't heard before, didn't know of. Yeah, that was a big part of it, too. I mean, I you know, I worked hard on this for about two years uh, and uncovered things that uh, Anthony hadn't known, that their family hadn't known. Um, certainly putting it in narrative form, uh, using all the facts available, I think, uh, shed a lot of light on on the experience of George Denning um, that may not otherwise have come to the surface. And then, you know, beyond that, uh, I'm, I'm transparent when I, this is my fourth book. And so, and every story has involved 
um, dealing with the descendants of somebody who did something interesting in American history. So I'm not new to this. And as a part of that, I've been, you know, transparent about if I, if, if this becomes a major motion picture or a film, uh, or, or a movie rather, I'm sorry, a television show rather that, um, I'll do right by that family and by the descendants in terms of, um, you know, taking care of them financially right. w within, within my means and, uh, sharing with them some of the proceeds that might come out of a, a story like this. Sure, sure. Oh, well, uh, Ben Montgomery, I'm just curious, last of all, photographs of George Dinning, are there any? There are no known photographs of George Dinning. Um, even though he uh, he lived into the 1930s, um, I cannot put my fingers on any photographs. The family doesn't have any. There, uh, however, is a drawing that ran in the uh, in the newspaper uh, in the Louisville Times in 1897. That is a pretty solid depiction of uh, what he would have looked like, you know, in in that day. It's a tremendous story, and you've done a great work to bring it to the fore. Ben Montgomery, a pleasure to have a chance to visit with you. Thank you so much. It's so good of you to have me on. Yeah, thank you very much. Ben Montgomery, a reporter formerly for the Tampa Bay Times. Currently, he writes for Axios. His most recent book titled A Shot in the Moonlight, How a Freed Slave and a Confederate Soldier Fought for Justice in the Jim Crow South. George Dinning was not the only formerly enslaved person to take on former oppressors in court, and not the only one to succeed either. We're about to learn about Henrietta Wood, who sued for reparations against the man who kidnapped and enslaved her after she had been legally freed. That story, when constant wonder, continues in a moment. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. In 1870, Henrietta Wood won the largest known sum ever granted by a U.S. court in restitution for slavery, successfully suing the man who had kidnapped and enslaved her in 1853. To learn more about her story, we spoke with Caleb McDaniel, McDaniel, a history professor at Rice University. He's author of Sweet Taste of Liberty, A True Story of Slavery and Restitution in America. McDaniel is the fellow who brought this story back to light. At the time, I was conducting research in 2014 on a different topic, which was the movement of enslaved people into Texas during the Civil War by Confederate planters who were hoping to evade the Emancipation Proclamation. And an, a colleague who knew that I was working on that subject uh, found the 1879 interview and sent it my way because that was part of Wood's story as well. She was forced to Central Texas from Mississippi uh, during the Civil War. Subsequently found the other interview that she gave in 1876, and it quickly became the main story that I wanted to tell. So give us again the year of the newspaper and the name of the newspaper, where it was located, where you mm -hmm. first heard her own narrative, her own account. 1879, and this was the year after the federal court uh, had awarded her $2,500, but she had not yet been paid. So uh, one of the first questions that I had when I read that interview was uh, what happened and whether she did in fact receive the money. But I did find about a year later the case file uh, that actually contained the original documents from her lawsuit, and that did contain evidence that she was paid the money and that it did uh, affect her life and the life of her family. And uh, you say $2,500. I, in error, cheated her and said $2,400, but she asked for even more. She did. She sued for $20,000 in damages and lost wages for her long re-enslavement. And so uh, part of the challenge of the book is to ask readers to wrestle with uh, that amount. It was a significant amount, um, about $60,000 or more in today's dollars. But at the same time, it was a fraction of what she asked and also a fraction of what the man she sued could have afforded to pay. And where was the 1879 publication of this story? This is very interesting to me because I think it's going to be factor into how, you know, who was publishing it, where and why, and what would the audience reading that have thought? 
This was in Ripley, Ohio, which is a southern Ohio um, town that actually had a long underground railroad history. And so that paper in particular uh, had readers and journalists who would have been interested in a story like this. The other interview she gave in 1876 was to a Cincinnati journalist named Lafcadio Hearn, who later became a, a sort of literary celebrity for his uh, writing of folk tales in Japan in the late 19th century. But he got his start as a journalist in Cincinnati, telling the stories of uh, people like Henrietta Wood, formerly enslaved people who lived in um, impoverished neighborhoods along the Ohio River in Cincinnati. And I'm guessing her story, told with her own words, recorded after being interviewed by a newspaper man, uh, that kind of a story is likely to get circulation publication in the north and not further south. Well, that's true, although one of the interesting aspects of the book is that the interviews were not widely reprinted. And so um, while the victory that she won in her lawsuit was widely reported in 1878, um, her story was not widely circulated, um, although a version of the story told by the man that she sued uh, was widely reprinted. So I think that that speaks to the disparities in the ability of, of different Americans in the past to, to have a platform to tell their stories. Um, but her determination to make sure that her story was heard is certainly the reason I was able to find enough to write a book. And if her story has been received over the years one way, are you hoping your book's going to be received another way? I do hope it will make her story uh, more visible. Um, you know, after she gave those interviews for decades, it, it was more or less forgotten, and even historians were not aware of uh, the the full story. Um, you know, it was actually collected by many enthusiasts of Lafcadio Hearn's writings, that, that particular interview, but all of them were more interested in Hearn himself and his life, and so there wasn't any effort to, to investigate her story. So I am hoping that uh, readers who uh, encounter her story for the first time will, uh, will gain some new insight onto the history of slavery and freedom and Reconstruction in uh, reading the book. So let's become familiar now with some of the main milestones of her life. Uh, this this could go on with, with considerable detail, but just hit hit uh, some of the main points where she was born, uh, in slavery, how she was freed, why she was freed. What was this manumission about? How mm -hmm. did how was she betrayed, uh, put back into slavery? Uh, walk us through that. She was born enslaved in northern Kentucky around 1818 or 1820, and as a teenager around the age of 14, she was sold to a merchant in Louisville and separated from her family. After that, she was sold to another merchant who moved to New Orleans, where she lived for about six or seven years. But then she returned to Kentucky, and the woman who enslaved her at that time moved to Cincinnati where the laws at the time required that people of color brought into the state be registered as free. So for about five years, from 1848 to 1853, Wood was living as a free woman there and worked in various boarding houses in the city before she was uh, lured back across the river and kidnapped and re-enslaved. Who... Uh, who who ratted her out, if you will? Who who turned her over to the kidnappers? Well, there was some dispute in the family that owned her uh, in 1848 about whether she should have been taken to Cincinnati or not. So uh, Jane Sirode was the woman who assisted her in obtaining those freedom papers, but Sirode's children believed uh, would to be part of their inheritance. They remained on the Kentucky side of the Ohio River, and they persuaded a deputy sheriff named Zebulon Ward to um, pay them some money for the right to sell her if he could capture her and re-enslave her. And so that was what set the wheels in motion to bring her back across the river and into her long ordeal. Do you have any idea how common it was for people to have actual documentation saying that they are no longer uh, slaves, mm -hmm. and, and, and yet for that documentation to be of basically no effect? 
Well, it was it was much more common uh, than I think many people realize. We we know stories about the Underground Railroad and the movement of people escaping across the river into the north, but there's another story of free people of color who were living in close proximity to slave states, uh, and they were always in danger of uh, re-enslavement. There are some stories that I think are well known to the general public. One is Solomon Northup's story, who was the subject of the movie 12 Years a Slave in uh, 2013, and he told a uh, or he wrote a memoir, excuse me, about his experience of kidnapping and enslavement that was published in 1853, the same year that Wood uh, and her ordeal began. But Northup in that book uh, spoke about hundreds of people that he knew were uh, laboring on plantations in Louisiana and the Deep South who had stories similar to his and to hers, if he had known it, uh, people who did have claims to freedom, but uh, those claims weren't recognized by Southern courts uh, once they were brought into slave states. I guess behind my question is the idea that if I were in that situation, I would cherish and treasure and protect and think those documents mm-hmm. are very, mm-hmm. very important. Did it, mm-hmm. If Henrietta Wood had papers, mm-hmm. do we know what happened to those papers? Well, we we do, and I don't want to give too much of the the storyline away, um, but suffice it to say that the two copies that existed, uh, she was not able to present them in court in Kentucky after she was kidnapped. So I think, um, on the one hand, those papers were, you know, treasured sources of freedom for many people, but freedom that depended on a paper uh, was also freedom that was paper-thin in a way, and was, you know, subject to um, destruction and loss and, um, you know, in a case like hers, did not prevent her from being re-enslaved. I don't even, I can't even imagine the idea of five years of freedom and then she goes to Kentucky. The Zebulon Ward was the deputy sheriff. He's involved he seems to have had a fair amount of braggadocio because he he had a story to tell and he was pushing the law. What was what was Ward's side of this? Uh, what was he saying about the whole situation? Well, part of Ward's account was uh, to claim that Wood had been taken into uh, Ohio and freed without the permission of Sirode's family, and so he cast her as um, a fugitive slave. So I've done the research to demonstrate that that story was was not true, and legally she did have a claim to freedom on on the basis of having those papers and living in Cincinnati for five years. But it spotlights um, the ways that the laws at the time made it easy for would-be kidnappers to uh, make stories like that that would endanger free people of color. The Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 for example, um, passed just a few years before Wood's kidnapping, uh, significantly lowered the burden of proof that enslavers uh, had to meet in order to demonstrate that somebody was, uh, as they claimed, a fugitive slave. And abolitionists and people of color themselves at the time pointed out the way that that law actually endangered people with legitimate claims to freedom um, because of uh, the the um, ways that it stacked the deck in favor of of men like Ward. Now, how I, I don't know that anybody will ever know the total numbers ever. Mm-hmm. But do we have any sense for how many uh, 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 former slaves were taken back into slavery under this Fugitive Slave Act? Or law, or it's whatever. It's very, was. very, very difficult to to estimate that. Partly because, you know, when we read about cases in newspapers, it's difficult to know, you know, whose claim to to recognize the claim of the person saying that this was a fugitive slave, or the claim of the person saying that they were a free person. Um, so it's difficult, you know, to to make a full accounting. Um, but. I think that most historians would agree it was a significant number. Um, I I know there's a forthcoming book by historian Richard Bell at the University of Maryland College Park. Uh, The title of it is Stolen, and he estimates that the number may have um, been roughly equivalent to the number of escapes on the Underground Railroad.
So the reason I'm curious about this is because Henrietta Wood has an exceptional story inasmuch as she received some restitution from the courts long after the Civil War. Uh, and if if she's the exception in receiving restitution, I'm just trying to compare that to how many people would have been in the similar situation. Mm-hmm. Well, I think her, her ordeal would have been much more common than the outcome of her suit. And in fact, much of the commentary about her restitution suit um, noted this. The New York Times published an article in 1878 in, in which it commented that, uh, you know, this was... Uh, this was a story that they had heard repeated many times or could be found repeated many times in the newspaper archives of the antebellum United States. And so people at the time, I think, were amazed by the outcome and, and compelled by the story, partly because those who had lived through the antebellum period knew that this was not um, an unusual circumstance. But what was unusual was for one of those people to be able to return to the scene of the crime, as it were, and locate the the perpetrator and then hold that person to account in in court now with notorious people these slave catchers and the complicity of say the sirode uh, descendants the members of the family where they had once owned her down in new orleans but now uh, they're up somewhere in ohio they kind of get into cahoots with sebulon ward they make arrangements who was rebecca boyd in this story Rebecca Boyd was the woman who was uh, Wood's employer at the time of her kidnapping in Cincinnati, although Wood comments that uh, she was the worst employer that she had had since she gained her freedom in 1848. She promised to pay Wood, but uh, never actually came through with that promise. Uh, But she had been working for Boyd for about three months and waiting for pay, and Boyd was uh, brought into cahoots with the kidnapping gang to uh, to offer to to take Wood on a carriage ride. Uh, that carriage then crossed the Ohio River, and Boyd uh, turned her over to Ward and his men. We've got to get the chapter of the story. It's multiple chapters, actually, because I want to talk about the period from 1853. I think that's when she's first kidnapped. I think 1855 is when uh, she loses a chance to, uh, to get out of that situation. And then she's taken down, to, I guess, to Mississippi and then to Texas. Tell us about her life in Mississippi and Texas with her second go-around as a slave. Mm-hmm. Well, there, too, she had what was a very common experience for um, enslaved people sold down the river. The interstate slave trade moved um, around one million people between 1820 and 1860 from the Upper South to the Lower South, and wood was sold into one of the largest slave markets of that time, the Forks of the Road market in Natchez, Mississippi where she was purchased by one of the largest slaveholders um, and wealthiest cotton planters in the area, a man named Gerard Brandon. Uh, And so she worked in the cotton fields for the first time in the late 1850s on Brandon's plantation near Natchez. But in the summer of 1863, as Union troops were approaching the Natchez district, Brandon and many others in that area realized that uh, if U.S. troops arrived, they would lose their their control over um, the enslaved people that they owned. So he forced uh, about 300 people to march uh, 400 miles to Robertson County, Texas, where she remained until about a year after the Civil War ended. And her work there? There, uh, Brandon was renting a plantation and producing cotton, uh, she speaks about the toll that the march took on her health. So at least for a period of time, she was on crutches and probably doing uh, household work for Brandon in his sort of rented camp there in Texas. Um, but she returned with him to Natchez in 1866. And uh, there's a contract showing that she did laundry and other domestic work for the Brandons for about three years before she saved up $25 to return up the river to Cincinnati. And while she's there, I also understand she was beaten. She was flogged. She was, and the Cotton uh, South was a brutal uh, place, and uh, she, you know, experienced that in her second enslavement. Um, it It was in addition to the brutality of a very 
new environment for her. She had been enslaved in urban settings um, for most of her earlier life. And so this was a new experience um, and a brutal experience in more ways than one. Now let's go to court with Henrietta Wood. What were the main arguments for and against? I'm just curious to know how this would have landed on the ears of juries, uh, the, the, the jury. Well, her case, um, you know, the, she did have, because of the abduction, uh, a sort of claim that gave her legal standing before the court. But in her petition, uh, she and her lawyers made clear that they thought of this case as about the evils of slavery itself. She wasn't just suing for the abduction uh, in 1853 by Ward, but she was also holding him accountable for all of the wages she had lost and all the suffering she had endured at the hands of Gerard Brandon um, after Ward sold her down the river. And so um, it was clear that, you know, this was a case that raised the the question of restitution for slavery writ large. Um, At the same time, and I think you mentioned in your introduction, uh, it's difficult to know whether the jurors and the judge recognized uh, that that argument or instead confined themselves to um, to offering restitution for the abduction that started her long ordeal. So it sounds like if they shine the light on the kidnapping, if they say, well, you were abducted and, we're, and you're going to get some money from Zebulon Ward and he's going to pay up on this, that is a way to maybe prevent her case from becoming a a precedent that other people would look to in this whole matter of reparations? It was clear that that was on the mind, uh, at the very least, of the first judge who heard the case. Um, He went out of his way to instruct the jury not to offer a reward excessive damages, um, and in fact, he he excused Ward on the grounds that, uh, you know, uh, this had been legal at the time, and and as much as anyone, everyone regretted slavery, he claimed that um, that their own moral judgments of the institution should not enter into their uh, their thinking about the case. So it's clear that that he and uh, and many of the people who commented on the case were concerned that it would generate a precedent. I wonder if the jury was sitting there saying, she's asked for a lot of money and we'll give her some, but we've got to downplay this. I think that's a that's a fair reading um, of the evidence. Uh, and, you know, nonetheless, although it was insufficient, it wasn't inconsequential for her. Um, it was, as I said, the, the largest known sum of restitution. It, it struck many commentators at the time as a large amount, and it did make a difference for for her and her family after the fact.